Welcome to the Four for Friday podcast. I'm Will Robb. He's Michael Girdley. Michael, would you like to tell everybody a little bit about our format? Sure. Uh, every week, Will and I get together uh, and we record uh, this podcast. It takes about a half hour and we go through four topics phrased as questions. Uh, and then we publish it to the internet for anyone in the world to download. And last week, about 70 people did, which is pretty amazing. I'm very happy. That's good. We've really kind of hit our, our, our zone there, around 70 people. No, well, no guests this week, just you and I. Um, yep. You ready to jump into it? Yeah, I have the first question. So, uh, Will, we had some exciting news this week that several vaccines for COVID uh, appear to be close. Um, an interesting next question of that is, uh, who will vaccinate their population more effectively, Canada or the U.S.? I think the answer to this is Canada. I was trying to figure out how to write this question down in a way that didn't lead the, the question entirely. But I, I think uh, they're on the same page with themselves a little bit more than we are. And the, the universal health care, I think, will help them roll it out more effectively. Yeah. Uh, I guess there's a case to be made for free market competition, create an incentive to get it uh, deployed quickly in the U.S., but I think it's just going to be kind of a confusing mess. Yeah, I, a million percent agree. Like, I, I remember over the summer, all those people showing up to Sturgis in North Dakota, and then COVID went everywhere. Like, there's no way, <laughs> there's no way, like, America is going to vaccinate well. Um, plus, we have so many more people, and like they're outdoors, and I don't know. We're just and we have a kind of a more diverse group of people. We have different types of people in different populations more than Canada does. Absolutely, absolutely. More languages. I mean, I guess they have a lot of languages and immigrants, but they're just a more cooperative group of people. I don't know what to say. They just do stuff. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Well, that was pretty easy. Yeah, Canada is uh, superior in many it ways. Okay, to be clear, neither neither Michael and I are epidemiologists or experts in healthcare or vaccination, but we just want to touch base on that quickly. Let's move on to our next question. What does you. Yeah, this one's me. What does being true to yourself mean? Yeah, this is uh, th this was a question I put in which I thought was a lot of fun and I um uh, I got it from listening to a podcast um, with one of the Freakonomics authors. So the book, Freakonomics, one of the authors, the guy who's the actual professor, he interviews people that he admires. And he interviewed this guy named Nathan Mirvold, who is uh, kind of a famous uh, Microsofty. So he was there around the time of, you know, Bill Gates era and all that stuff. So two interesting things happen. One is this guy somehow manages to talk and sound just like a different version of Bill Gates. So whatever Bill Gates had going on was translated directly into this guy's mannerisms. His name's Nathan Mirvold. But the second thing that he said was really interesting, which was, hey, I know in life that the most efficient way to go about things is to focus, but that's not me. He said, I have to be true to myself and I know that I have varied interests and I want to work on a bunch of different things. And I was like, wow, that is like, Super cool. And I guess it's easy to do when you're worth like $500 million to be like, yeah, I'm going to be self-actualized and be true to myself. But like, I thought it was so cool that the guy was just like, I'm going to be inefficient because I have to be like, I can't be any other way. Well, that's pretty interesting. Uh, I think the money is a, an important 
component of this question in that, okay, it's, it's convenient if you're uh, self-sufficient and wealthy already to just uh, be true to yourself in whatever way it is, whether it's uh, having varied interests or having obscure interests or whatever it is. Um, I think maybe being true to yourself would be understanding that you don't necessarily need $500 million to be true to yourself. Yep. That you can follow your own compass and, and not need those kind of resources. Yep. Uh, your, your reality can be kind of as you choose it, uh, kind of whatever your income level is, if you're thoughtful about doing the things that are consistent with what you want to be doing. Yeah. This is yeah. exactly the kind of question that, uh, that is, is big and abstract and personal altogether, uh, which I normally have a lot of trouble answering. So I thought it was interesting when you wrote it down. I was like, well, I hope Michael has some interesting things to say about this because uh, I'm going to have to react to what he says to get started on it. Yeah. Well, I think it, it stuck with me because I've struggled with having varied interests. Like I'm I'm a serial, I'm, I'm a serial deep person. Like I will get really, really into stuff and then I will get bored of it after four or five months and then I'll go to the next thing and I'll be totally fixated. Um, but I'll do that also in parallel with like six or seven things at a time. Like I was talking on Twitter with people about hobbies and I made a list of like 18 hobbies I have. Uh -huh. Like, like I have a lot, a lot of hobbies. And so, you know, it's just this, this thing where I've struggled with the rational and logical understanding that that is, not the optimal outcome. Like I should go become really, really good at, at becoming a quant trader, like have that level of focus and just go deep, deep, deep because the world rewards that. And I've really struggled with being somebody very attracted to varied interests. And, you know, hearing that quote, like it was pretty like satisfying to me. I was like, isn't, oh, like, isn't that just a sit thing though? You have like an idea that comes from the outside world that you could be better or more efficient or something if you focus on exactly one thing. Mm -hmm. But internally, you know, you're interested in more than one thing. Absolutely. And so you're getting distracted by something that is not true to yourself, this idea that you should totally focus your energy in one direction. Yeah, but objectively that's true. Like it is a logical truth that the world rewards on average people who are specialists that go deep in things and stay deep and keep going deep, deep, deep and get really, really good at them. But like, it's not me. I think you're missing the point on the world rewards because you're, you're focusing on the monetary gains of focusing yeah. one thing or the way the world uh, produces income for people who specialize really intensely. But impact too, right? If you, go, if you go halfway into a PhD on five different things, it's unlikely that you're gonna, you're gonna push forward the, the universe of knowledge, right? Okay. Yeah, true. There's some, there's some kind of balance to be struck there. And, and I don't know, I think not for, for a lot of people, the struggle with being true to themselves is not always about uh, varied interests versus focus interests. Uh, I think generally, if you are true to yourself, uh, then you will be rewarded by the world, uh, not necessarily in the form of money, but in the, the richness of your life. Uh, yeah. and for a lot of people being really focused on one or two things might be the way that they're true to themselves. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I'm just not them. You know, yeah. I, w I wish I was them. That would be great. All right, let's move on. This is a good one. Uh, Will, what are the tax advantages of owning real estate? 
there are a lot of tax advantages of owning real estate. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is depreciation. Mm-hmm. So if you own an asset, you know, the, the value, the price you paid for that asset can be depreciated over a, a long period of time, but it depreciates in big chunks. So that depreciation can really offset a lot of income, uh, your, both your real estate income from, from the properties and, and over and beyond that for some people. This moves around and it's kind of nuanced. But depreciation is a, a pretty meaningful deal uh, on offsetting income. And then the, the second one that comes to mind is the 1031 exchange, which is not specific to only real estate, but it is uh, very common in the real estate world. If you sell an asset and you purchase uh, a like asset as a replacement, then you say, well, this wasn't really a capital gain. I was just replacing one asset with another asset right? Uh, rather than a sale. I mean, a, a comparable example would be uh, a factory or a piece of manufacturing equipment could be 1031 exchanged um, similarly. So that's a, that's a big advantage for, for real estate. And it basically allows you to punt all of your capital gains and the taxes on them into the future and if you keep doing this, you can keep kind of keep doing it uh, indefinitely until you're dealing with uh, estate taxes rather than capital gain taxes. Yeah. So coming back to depreciation, which you mentioned first, it's like super powerful. So there's there's different types of depreciation also, which you can, some of it can be accelerated. Is that right? Sure. Yeah. Different assets uh, depreciate at different schedules. So um, if you were, you know, say a, a single family home, I think, uh, depreciates at 27 and a half years, you just straight line over 27 years. But if you make a capital improvement for a commercial lease, say a seven year lease, then you're just going to depreciate over those seven years. So you can have these kind of big swing depreciation moments. Is that what you were thinking of? Yeah, for sure. Well, and then the thing that's fascinating to me is, let's say that you buy a building for a thousand dollars and somebody else has already depreciated the whole thing off, but you buy it, you know, so, so you buy it for somebody else for a thousand dollars and you start your depreciation clock. Right. And so each year you're going to lose over that, whatever, 29 years, a percentage of the value and get to write that off. But then you sell it to the next guy for a thousand dollars. And, uh, like, his new his new clock starts at a thousand dollars. Doesn't start at your depreciated value. So things can be depreciated over and over again. Is that right? That's right. There is kind of this funny uh, disconnect between the the accounting concept of depreciation and the uh, real world returns improvement we expect on appreciation with real estate. So you get this weird disconnect where you're getting a tax break because your asset in theory is decreasing in value. Uh, but in reality, you'll likely sell it for a higher price than what you paid for it. Yeah. Well, you do get stuck unless you take that gain and put it into a new piece of property. You do get stuck with the gain on the the sales price minus the depreciated value. So if it depreciates by half. Right. Your cost yeah. braces keeps shrinking as you depreciate it. So your your capital gain uh, it gets bigger as you get you know as you sell it later. The longer you've held it. Right. Um, this leads to a lot of investors kind of feeling stuck with their assets yep. where they've held an asset uh, for a long time or it's the, 
it's the second or third asset in a chain of 1031 exchanges. And they just look at the, the depreciation and they think, well, if I were to sell this asset and not exchange it into something else, the, the tax consequences would be enormous and I can't possibly do that. Right. Really fascinating. And then there's one more that we haven't really talked about. Well, there's two more actually. So um, obviously long-term capital gains versus short-term gains, right? Right. So long-term capital gains means you pay a lower tax rate when you hold something for a longer period of time, which in this case is an asset. So that's not just, that's just not specific to real estate. Um, the other thing that's really interesting about real estate also is loan proceeds are not taxable. Right. So if you buy a building for a thousand dollars and it then turns into a fifteen hundred dollar building and you get a loan that is eighty percent of the total value of that building, you can actually pull more cash out of it non-taxably than you used to buy it originally. That's correct. Uh, in certain circumstances, that cash out refi situation can be considered a capital gain. Mm -hmm. Uh, normally, it is not if you use that capital and reinvest in the same business uh, that generated the value that allowed you to do it in the first place. So if you're in real estate and you do a cash out refi and reinvest in, in real estate business, it's normally not considered a capital gain. But if you just take that money and put it in your own pocket, it could be a capital gain. So if I buy a boat with it. If no. you buy a boat with it, probably a capital gain. Uh, unless the boat is like a cargo boat and, it, and the money came out of a warehouse and this is all involved in the, the business of uh, what item are you moving around in boats and storing in your warehouse? If the, the, so if you bought a boat to ship fireworks from China and stored it in a fireworks warehouse, then I think it's still part of the business. Roger. All right. And then there's one more, right? Opportunity zones. Opportunity zones. So this one's relatively new. And the, the idea behind opportunity zones was to incentivize investment in, in blighted areas or areas that, that needed uh, improvement in capital dollars. Uh, and the idea is to make a, a big discount on capital gains. Have you studied this closely? Uh, yes, but mostly for an interesting edge case of opportunity zones, which is the opportunity zone businesses. Because you can use opportunity zones to basically um, avoid income taxes on gains, uh, either for what are called opportunity zone businesses or opportunity zone properties. So the properties are pretty straightforward, like is the property in this geography and is it not being used for certain types of uses? Great. Uh, or the opportunity zone businesses have some other tests, like more than half your revenue has to happen inside the opportunity zone. You have to, um, not do things like golf courses or take, you know, just be a holding company, that sort of thing. So there's some exclusions as well. Restaurants don't count either. So yeah, they're pretty powerful. Basically somebody can defer gains. So basically like with real estate, do a 1031 exchange into them, or they can just put after tax money into it. Uh, and then the gains from that investment, as long as there's a 10 year holding period are federal income tax free. Yes. So you don't even need to do a 1031 exchange when you exit the property in this case. I'll be yeah. curious to see uh, how long opportunities last and persist as a, as a tax incentive. Mm -hmm. I think there's a, a little bit of con confusing 
concept and the, the premise between the idea that we want money and reinvestment to go into blighted neighborhoods and the idea that with real estate, if we're incentivizing people to go invest and make improvements in, in blighted neighborhoods, what we may wind up with is uh, just displacing the population that was in that neighborhood to begin with. So there's that kind of issue. Yeah, it's, yeah, we I mean, are starting to go into the gentrification issue, but yeah, it's, it's, it's exactly. not a, yeah, it's not a million percent obvious that this is a net positive for opportunity zones. There also is the issue of how the opportunity zones were defined. A certain percentage were set by federal agencies. Uh, there are some of them that were set by governors and governors are political animals and political animals listen to donors. So there, if you go around the country, there are some opportunity zones that you're like, really? <laughs> so yeah, um, worth, well, worth the federal digging government's a, a political animal also. So yeah. There's all kinds of uh, strange incentive around how you determine these things. I tell you this, if you look on a commercial listing sites, it, it seems like 70% of all the properties there have uh, opportunity zone tagged somewhere in the, the brochure. Uh, it is. It's also, and one last anecdote around opportunity zones, like the, the number of family office and like private investor professionals that are just like totally down on opportunity zone deals is really funny, right? Because people have come up with all these creative structures. What do you mean totally down? Like they totally want to be involved? Oh, they think they're, no, they think they're crap deals. Think they're crap deals. Yeah. Because it turns out, you know, you can, you can try to try to start underwriting a lot of crazy stuff under two scenarios. Uh, You know, low margin, low return stuff suddenly underwrites really well when you don't have to pay taxes. Uh, and then the second thing is when there's, you know, rental revenue growth, like a lot of things will underwrite really heavily. So, you know, the funny thing is that a lot of these pitches that are going to family offices or high net worth individuals, they are really talking up opportunity zones by showing deals that kind of do both of those things. And a lot of those assumptions are probably just not true. Yeah. Hmm. Let's move on to question number four. Question number four, and you've had a little experience with this idea, so it's kind of a question for you. Is offshoring work still a thing? Yeah, so this is your question. So I'm wondering if the answer is just like, yeah, yeah, it's definitely a thing. It's growing like crazy uh, and accelerating. Is If that's the answer, were you looking for a different answer than that? Well, I was just considering the trade-off between offshoring work and uh, work from home that's happening now. Offshoring work, uh, you know, obviously more difficult when you actually have to travel to a location to set up an office and then uh, working from home, you know, that's keeping domestic costs down. Mm -hmm. So I wondered if you had thoughts about running businesses and trying to hire people and offshoring. Uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting because it's starting to make a lot of job searches be borderless, right? It's just like, okay, well, like we need an analyst for this. Like you're hearing people just be like, I'm going to hire the right person wherever they are. It just doesn't matter. Like, um, and do I, can I get somebody and it's calculus, right? Like if it's in the U S you're seeing people that are like, okay, I want to hire a U.S. worker uh, and they're going to cost this and they're going to be, you know, let's say an A plus person based on experience and cultural differences and stuff like that. Or do I hire somebody in Canada that's, 80% that, but maybe not as good, or somebody in Scandinavia or Poland. Um, so it's really changing. 
at least for me, what I'm seeing in terms of these white collar, very specialized professional jobs, like, okay, well, if somebody's going to be working from their home in Amarillo or Chicago, like who cares if they're in Mexico city or in Buenos Aires, like you just, you start to run these broader searches. Um, and, and that's the expansion from what I think you saw happening wholesale before, which was like, you know, entire back office teams or entire development teams being shipped to India or Indonesia or Colombia. Mm-hmm. So you're starting to see individual searches be just totally location agnostic. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Thanks for signing in on that. Uh, I mean, it just comes back to how stupid our immigration policy is. Like, like, if somebody if somebody's the best in the world at something and the an employer is willing to hire them and they're going to add to the economy and they're going to they're going to build up the tax base like why the heck not especially if your options as an employer are you know import that person here or hire them remotely and pay them where they are like why the heck aren't we moving them to america um, i mean the thing i wish that would happen is i i wish that we would take kind of our quota system and move it to more of a, like an auction type system with these types of hires, right? Like if Google is willing to pay $50,000 to move some Russian physicist here to be a, an AI programmer in Mountain View, like they should do that, right? There's clearly a ton of economic value that person should bring, but instead we do, we do have these wacky H1B quota systems and stuff that are just, they're just dumb. They're just, they're just, they don't work. They hurt everybody the way they're the way they're implemented. Yeah, but you're kind of making the case that that shouldn't even be necessary. That person wouldn't need to move to the U.S. They could just be hired remotely and stay where they are. Uh, that 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 in practice is what's happening. Yeah, <laughs> like it it shouldn't be that way, it, but it's that way because we have bad policies. Now, if you were to hire uh, a software engineer in Canada. Would you, would you expect that person to be vaccinated? <laughs> uh, Canadian software engineers are really hard. Like at least Western Canada, like I haven't had a ton of great luck having cultural matching of work ethic with America's work ethic in, in Western Canada. Eastern Canada, Toronto feels, you know, it's more, it's more like cold New York City, but um yeah, it's a challenge, but I'm sure they'd be vaccinated. I know you just okay. asked me a jokey question. I gave you a serious answer that pooped on Western Canada. But <laughs> yes, is there any other locations you would like to uh, take a shot at while we're at it? Oh man, uh, man. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Let me tell you about Monterey, Mexico. No, it's nice down there, but not that nice. <laughs> okay. Well, it seems like we've done enough damage for today. Yeah, there's now 71 people. Well, we're going to go down to probably 65 listeners after this one. So we're going to lose all of our Canadians. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for doing the podcast this week. Yeah, we'll good job it. by you. Well done. Good job. Thanks for listening, everybody. Catch you next week.